On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation about the Exodus story with the Scottish-Israeli master of Midrash, Aviva Zornberg. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Start talking or... Yes? Okay. All right. Well, the first thing I wanted to ask you um, before we, we actually get into the story is um, I, I noticed that you were not always a teacher of religion. And I wondered if you grew up reading the text uh, with this midrashic, midrashic approach, or is this something that you learned um, as an adult? That's interesting. <laughs> yes, I grew up, uh, I was, uh, my first education in Bible was with my father. Um, I, used to, I used to learn with him every day. Mm. And he certainly was very imbued with this Midrashic approach. Okay. Which is in a way a very traditional approach. Yeah. Uh, he was a rabbi and, uh, and I think it was also a question of personal predilection. That That's what he liked to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in a way it's, it's it, uh, it's part of my basic sense of what uh, what Torah is. Okay, it's I think it's so. I mean, it's so midrash is so creative and fascinating, uh, and it's it's I think for people who who, who are new uh, who don't know that tradition, you know, it's almost surprising to hear that in fact this very creative way of looking at at, at fundamental mm. texts is is also a traditional way of looking at, at foundational mm. text. Yes. Okay. You're very soft, but Mitch, can we, is there anything we can do about that? Or I think we'll just keep talking and let them worry about it. Um, so, so if I asked you to, to, just to start telling the story, um, the Exodus story, um, the way you would want to, tell it to someone? I mean, sort of taking the text, obviously, as our jumping-off point. Um, uh, you know, how, how would you start that? And let's just kind of walk through it. Hmm. Well, I think I would start with uh, the Hebrew name of the book, uh, right. which is Shemot, mm-hmm. which means names. Hmm. And the book starts with the names of the 12 sons of Jacob who went down to Egypt. And after we hear their names... Basically, names disappear from the story. Right. And you have a sense of the people becoming largely anonymous. Um, Even the heroes of the story are relatively anonymous. Um, And I think that's significant. I think what happens, and this is, again, it's a traditional possible reading of the story, Mm -hmm. uh, what happens to the Israelites in Egypt is that they gradually lose their distinctness, their individuality, Mm-hmm. Um, they um, assimilate, but it's not just that they assimilate to the culture, but that they lose their differences one from the other. Mm. And what what uh, mirrors that in the external world is a new policy in Egypt to reduce what had once been an honored guest people to the condition of slavery. Right. 
Um, the description of how that happens, I think, suggests that it happens gradually. Perhaps the the country wouldn't have been willing to accept it if it had been an overnight uh, draconian um, decision. And gradually things get worse and worse till the point where there are decrees to throw baby boys in the in the river. Right. So that there should be no future at all for the Israelite nation. And it's the the reason for this it remains rather mysterious. Why does the Egyptian king? It seems that there's a new king who arises over Egypt, who has forgotten Joseph and uh, the way in which he saved uh, the Egyptian empire at one time from mm -hmm. famine. Um, and this new king, for some reason, decides that this guest nation are a threat and wants to suppress them. He so seems, it begins with sorry. Right. He he seems to be concerned. Um, Partly, or at least just in, from what the text says, just about their numbers, that somehow they are becoming this overwhelming They're becoming overwhelmingly many, yes. Uh -huh. There are these these multiple expressions of, uh, of proliferation. Right. Uh, they, are, they are multiplying exceedingly. And somehow, as if the, the sense is that they constitute a threat. Right. Um, but the terms in which that is put is, are rather um, mysterious. Mm -hmm. uh, they will go up from the, from the, they will leave the country. Which one one view of that is that in fact it's a kind of um, he's saying the opposite of what he really means. Uh, what he's afraid that they will be forced to leave the country. The Egyptians, in some way, then, this then, new nation uh -huh. will take over. Right, right, because there's no sense that the Israelites have been troublesome. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And my mm -hmm. my point about the lack of names suggests that it's almost the opposite. That they have become rather characterless uh -huh. and apathetic. Um, and that they're very easy prey hmm. at this point. So I think there is something of a kind of sadomasochistic uh, relationship right. that is going on here. And um, then it, yes. it, it's so um, it's it's intriguing that that midwives, you know, yes. just so so yeah. quickly into this story, mm -hmm. um, when the pharaoh uh, decides that he somehow he's threatened by these people. It, 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 he instructs. I mean, it's not a kind of frontal attack, right? Or that we, th mm -hmm. you know, not a, not any models that we think of, of of if a people becomes concerned about another people in its midst. I mean, he mm -hmm. he, he issues this decree to the midwives. Mm -hmm. I wonder how you think about that and the, kind of the symbolism of that. Is there anything in that that's special mm -hmm. for you? Yes, I do feel that uh, the midwives are the expression of exactly what. Uh, Pharaoh is antagonistic to. Mm -hmm. That is the possibility of something new coming into the world, the feminine principle. Mm -hmm. Pharaoh stands, it seems to me, very much for a kind of a harsh masculine principle of um, the word that's used in Hebrew in, uh, in Midrashic sources is gzera, uh, which means edict, mm -hmm. um, that there's only one way things can be. And the midwives are these feminine, evasive, secret, intimate creatures who have access to life at its source. Mm. And uh, he would like to get rid of the male uh, Israelites. Right. He orders them to kill if when he's when they are delivering yes. babies, if the mm. baby is male, to as you say, throw them into the Nile. Um, although he says the girls can live. Yes. Well, with the midwives, he actually asks them to kill the boy babies on at birth. Okay. 
So there's two stages to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only it's when they refuse uh, oh, to do then, it right. that uh, the, uh, the other policy, come, mm-hmm. that more public policy mm-hmm. comes into play. But this is, as you say, it's a, it's a secret extermination policy. Right. No one need ever know. Yeah. Uh, and the midwives very cleverly answer that there's no way of keeping it secret because the, the Israelite women are not like the Egyptian women. This is their, their excuse. Yeah. Um, that before we can even arrive, they've given birth. Right. So it wouldn't be secret any longer if we were to kill after birth. Um, so that the, the, the policy, the, the attempt of, of Pharaoh at any rate, is to have it done in some covered way so that no one need ever really know what has happened. Um, and that would be to take over the Israelite nation in a certain very effective way. You kill the males, and the females uh, then can be assimilated in, in, among the Egyptians. The Egyptians will be able to take the women mm-hmm. for themselves, which is not usually the way you go about exterminating a nation. Right. Uh, usually you would, you would get rid of the women. It's the women who... Right, who... Yes. Bring forth the next generation. Um, and so it seems that there is something about the Israelites, this is how I understand it, there's something about them that he would like to incorporate hmm. um, into his own nation, hmm. but to absorb it okay. in such a way that it wouldn't constitute any kind of threat. Hmm. So that's, this is where I think that the, the very important theme of procreation, of bringing life, new life into the world, begins the whole the principle of the feminine which is so important at the beginning of the book Mm. and so there's there is this um this very antagonistic relationship that is building already very early in exodus between the pharaoh and the israelites and then um i mean it's it's very interesting to me that it's the pharaoh's daughter who actually enters then as a as a major character, and and takes the story to its next stage. Mm. Yes, that she actually has the the courage to save what she knows to be a Hebrew a baby from of the Hebrew nation, mm-hmm. in spite of her father's policy. Um, so basically, she is defying her father. Yeah, um, and that is an extremely symbolically. It's a it's a very provocative act. He is not only her king, but her father. Uh, in a sense, she she disposes of his fatherly power. Um, in Midrashic tradition, she's given the name Batya, um, which means daughter of God, hmm. as if to say that she, she chose God for a father rather than God's antagonist, hmm. who is Pharaoh. And... Talk to me about Moses in this book, in this story, in this this narrative. I think if you know from the very beginning, this is a very complicated character. It's never just a you know just a any kind of fairy tale hero. Mm. Moses. Yes. Well, I think one of the uh, significant aspects of Moshe's identity, Moses' identity is the fact that he belongs to two nations at once, that he has a kind of double identity. He's nursed by his mother, but only on hire to the Egyptian princess. Hmm. So it's not exactly a natural and unequivocal way of of coming into the world. Right. Um, And then he's raised in Pharaoh's palace. 
as a prince, as basically Pharaoh's grandson. Yeah. The daughter of his daughter, the son of his daughter. Um, and it's with that kind of very complex background that he goes out one day and notices for the first time fully the suffering of his brothers and identifies them as his brothers. So that's a very significant moment where we were told he grew up, Vayigdal, as if there are stages of maturing. There comes a certain moment where things open up hmm. and he begins to realize how much these people are suffering and that they are, in fact, his brothers. And the next, the next part of the story tells how he intervenes when an Egyptian is beating up one of his brothers, uh, intervenes again um, in another fight. So M Moshe turns out, Moses turns out from the very beginning to be someone who is subject to a very, he has a very strong sense of justice. Yeah. And he doesn't hold back. Uh, later, the, again in the Midrashic traditions, anger will be the one equivocal, um, perhaps negative uh, quality that is, is attributed to Moses. Because he, he does, he does tends, then kill the, the Egyptian. He actually kills, mm -hmm. yes. Um, and, and that again, there's a question, there's a moral question that, that hangs over that. Is that a justified yeah. thing to have done? Um, I think most of, the, most of the Midrashic sources, most of the commentaries will say it is justified in these circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there are always the few who raise a question about it. So that from the beginning, uh, as you say, he's not a simple character. And, you know, I think, I mean, that is actually something I value very much in the Hebrew Bible in general, that, it, that even the heroic, the icons are fully human uh, in every way and full of passion and flawed Yes, I, I think, think Moses is, is in a kind of tradition there, isn't he? Very much so. I mean, even the fact that it's made very clear that he is, he's born a woman. He's, uh, he is, Hello? Come, has a human birth. Oh, sorry. I, could you, I didn't yes. hear what you just, I didn't hear the beginning of your yeah. answer. Uh, I was just stressing the fact that yeah. I think that the Torah, the Bible, stresses the fact that he was born a woman, born, a woman born. Yeah. That he was, he was humanly born. Even so, he is clearly the savior. He's called the, in rabbinic language, he's called the savior of the Israelites. Yeah. Um, so there's clearly, I think, something, a little bit of a, a polemic going on there in the rabbinical sources uh, in relation to the Christian tradition, hmm. where the savior is someone who cannot be, cannot be human right. in, that, in that physical sense completely. Um, and uh, in the case, in, 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 in the story of Moses, I think almost every event that he's involved in is subject to complex interpretation mm -hmm. because nothing is straightforward. Right. And then, I mean, very soon after this, he, he flees and uh, because he has, he has committed this murder and um, I guess... He's being sought and takes refuge. Um, mm -hmm. And then very soon after that, we have this um, famous story of the, the burning bush. I mean, Moses encounters, yes. encounters the divine. Mm -hmm. Tell me how, 
you know, take me to how you read that whole that whole story of the burning bush and everything that you can read in that in the Hebrew and what you know from midrashic tradition. Kind of, I wonder if you just sort of open that up for us, all the some layers of meaning that it has for you. Well, it begins with it's it's in chapter three, and it begins. It begins with uh, Moses turning aside to see this wonder, which is the bush that is burning in fire but not consumed. And so that first moment of turning aside from your straight path um, receives uh, attention in the, uh, in the Midrashic tradition that it's a certain quality of the spirit that allows him to move away from the straight and narrow, as it were, from his own concerns, and to simply to notice an anomaly in the world hmm. and to look for meaning in it. Uh, he, he, God engages him in dialogue at that point and basically tells him that the time has come for redemption and that he, was, he will descend now and save the people and Moses will be the intermediary between God and the people and also between God and Pharaoh. And I think the most striking thing in the narrative, and it's quite a long, drawn-out narrative, is that Moses consistently refuses to take on the mission. Right. And he, well, and he yes. says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, <laughs> and they're not going to believe me. And whatever God says, he basically repudiates. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the most extraordinary first meeting mm-hmm. between God and a human being. Uh, it's not just that he's too modest to take on the role. He's skeptical about everything that God says. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really almost what you would call chutzpah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, <laughs> yeah. how, how does one talk to God like that? Um, and it's interesting that in the, uh, again, in the critiques that you find in the Midrashic tradition, he's not criticized so much for, um, for cheek against God, as for slandering the people, hmm. for being dubious about the people's capacity to believe, to allow themselves to be redeemed. Hmm. He apparently doesn't think very much of the people. Hmm. Are they worthy of redemption? Um, in the end, after, after a lot of to, to and fro between God and Moses, the Midrash says it takes seven days, actually. This is not something you would necessarily see right. from reading the text. A whole week, uh, there's this kind of uh, resistance until in the end, Moses says, well, send by the hand of anyone you want to send by, so long as it's not me. (laughs) And at this point, God gets angry, uh, the text says, and says, well, all right, we'll involve Aaron with you. Your brother Aaron will go with you. But the detail of God being angry with Moses, I think, is very significant. Because it seems, and this is what I, what I would suggest, it seems that Moses, in a very intense way, is representing the problem that God faces in trying to redeem the people. It's not only a problem with Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. It's not only the persecutor. Okay. It's a problem with the people and with Moses, um, that there is a kind of resistance uh, in re- to, 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 to God's redemption, which is really, as I understand it, it's something that can only be understood in psychological terms. Mm-hmm. There's an unwillingness to open oneself up to an alternative reality. 
for Moses, it means that he can't speak. That's part of his protest. Yeah, he says there's something wrong with his speech. Right. Uh, exactly how one slow is to understand it. Slow of speech it. and slow of tongue in yes. one translation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, heavy, the word he uses, heavy. Kvadpe. Huh. Heavy right. of heavy mouth. Huh. But the interesting thing is that uh, that word heavy is the word that the Torah text uses to describe Pharaoh's heart. Right. It's that same word, is it? It's the same word. There are several words used of Pharaoh's heart, as he's, his heart is constantly hardened mm-hmm. in the course of the ten plagues. Uh, but one of them is this word, kaved, heavy, which mm. means really somehow resistant, mm. impervious, closed off. Um, and it seems to me that that can't be by accident, that you have the same word that used. echo. Yes. Um, it seems to me that Moses' sense of himself... Is it's a very deep sense of not being able to open himself to mm. the Word of God to such an extent that he is willing to forego the opportunity to redeem the people because he is simply not the right person mm. for this. Uh, the most extraordinary image he uses about his speech capacity uh, is uh, when he says he is aral svataim, which literally means that he has uncircumcised lips. Right. Yes. What and does he says that it twice. mean? What does that mean? I mean, yeah, when it, it gets translated into English, it, it, it just doesn't make any yes. sense. Yes, it is odd. It's, it's as if an operation needs to be performed on him. He's, as if he is a newborn baby, as this whole people are newborn babies. Uh, an operation needs to be performed, which is called circumcision, so as to open up the possibility of healthy communication with the world. Hmm. Uh, in Jewish tradition, the circumcision is what makes it possible for a Jewish male to have relations with a female. In other words, that, that the opening in some sense, the taking away, the removal mm-hmm. of the foreskin is what makes it possible then to communicate in the sexual, in the sexual mode. And Moses, in a... There's a kind of connection here between language and sexuality, which I find fascinating. Hmm. Um, both have to do with the possibility of communicating. And relationship. Relationship, yeah. yes, yes. And Moses is very sensitive to the problem that he has and that he senses that the people also have. So that the whole situation, as I understand it, at this, as, as the story begins, is not a simple one of a cruel, persecuting pharaoh and, a, and poor, helpless victims. Mm-hmm. It's poor, helpless victims who will need in some way to arouse within themselves the capacity to be redeemed, that is to open themselves mm-hmm. to relationship, to communication, if they are to be redeemed. Uh, God is not going to uh, the the image of birth uh, is one that's off, it's really uh, it's very inviting when one thinks of the Exodus. Um, it means literally the going out of Egypt, Yitziat Mitzrayim, and that word to go out is also a word that's used of birth. So that you will find the birth image used quite quite often about the need to birth the people. Right, and you use an image in your book. Um now that went at the, and the book is called "The Particulars of Rapture," and we'll yes. we'll talk about that some more as we as we keep speaking. Mm-hmm. But you use an image there of this being kind of a forceps birth, 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly what I what mm-hmm. I want. I would like to say yes, mm-hmm. um, that there is such a thing as the mother body, the the body of the mother refusing to let go. That would be Egypt, and the the embryo refusing to the the, the fetus, uh, the, the 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 child refusing yeah. to to emerge yeah. from from the body, and then what does the midwife do? And so the expression the midrash uses is it's 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 suffering for. The midwife and it's suffering for the baby to have to deliver the baby by by force, mm. a forceps delivery. Mm. Um, is that the way it happens? Um, I'd li- I'd like to suggest that the whole story really is about the need for the people uh, to be more than an object that has to be <laughs> yanked out of Egypt, but to become for the people to become. Uh, uh, to acquire the kind of life and openness and and communicability hmm. that makes them want to emerge from that place of death, which which is Egypt. And I mean, we're already there. There is something quite remarkable that happens when you when you just start telling and retelling these stories, which hmm. which we know in many simplified forms, right? I mean, we know yes. we know this story from movies and uh, hmm. and from songs. Hmm. Um, but when you start just talking about it, even kind of retracing what happens, then the deeper meanings start to become clear. And I mean, it is such an extended reflection on the human condition, isn't it? And on human nature. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even as you say, um, it, it, it's, not, it's not simple on either side because you do have this character of the Pharaoh's daughter who represents a different kind of Egyptian. Yes. But then, I mean, let's talk about the Pharaoh himself, because I, I think that's a, you know, um, that for such a long time, as you say, his, he hardens his own heart mm. and, and God, um, brings punishment, plagues, um, th- which Moses sort of, I guess he announces, doesn't he? He, mm. um, the frogs and lice and locusts and yes. pestilence, but it's only after a number of those and after after, in fact, the, the people get boils, the people of Egypt, that, that then suddenly the text says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I don't know, maybe you could tell me what the, how, if the Hebrew, Hebrew gives more nuance to that. But what, what, what is that saying there about the nature of Pharaoh or the oppressor, if, if that's what he stands for, and, and also the nature of this, this God who is rescuing Israel? Talk to me mm. about that part of mm. the narrative. Well, it's really quite a theological problem, mm-hmm. actually, uh, which um, the Midrash pays a lot of attention to, uh, and that is that if God hardens Pharaoh's heart, then obviously Pharaoh is not responsible anymore yeah. for his intransigence. Uh, why should he be punished? Why, it's God who's interfering with, with, with his vital organs. Um, and, and the classic direction of to answer it has to do with reaching a point of no return, that one can, one can make oneself obdurate and closed to all appeal from the outside world um, to such a point that, in fact, it's as if human, uh, autonomy, the human autonomy ceases to, ceases to act altogether. One no longer has the power to backtrack. 
And from that point onwards, I think it's a kind of figure of speech then to say that God hardens his heart. So, I, so yeah. say a person makes so many um, yes. wrong choices or or, yes. or choices which are harmful to others that at some point they they seem not no longer to be in control. That, yes. that they will continue to make those kinds of choices. There seems to be no longer any any free will. Uh-huh. It makes me think of Macbeth, who uh, uh-huh. who can't. After a certain point, he, he wonders at himself. Why couldn't he answer Amen to to some the guard calling out some uh, some blessing in his sleep? Uh-huh. Why couldn't he do the thing that one would thought any sensitive person would do? He's he's gone beyond the point of no return. He can't use religious language any longer. Um, and I think with, with Pharaoh, uh, there is the sense that repeatedly, it's not just that he hardens his heart, but th- what, what that means in terms of relationships is that he simply doesn't hear. He doesn't hear. And the word, he, he doesn't hear what Moses is saying, he doesn't hear what God is saying. There's clearly an intention here. He makes himself as someone who can't hear. Hmm. And that means that actually he doesn't even have to say no. This is something I find very, very striking, actually, mm. that he actually not, not very often does he outright refuse to let the people go. He, he basically just, sits he just there impassively okay. and doesn't listen. Hmm. Uh, it's so that it's, and is it, insensitive it, to their plight and their pleas. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. he's insensitive perhaps by nature and by nature of his role. I think it has to do with almost with um, with the symbolic role of a pharaoh, um, the sphinx-like being who cannot be swayed hmm. in in any way, uh, who is completely cryptic, who doesn't have to to make any effort to come towards the world. Um, and in fact, I think the, the breakdown of Pharaoh happens to at the end of the st- of the story, at the end of the ten plagues, when he actually begins to speak. When to he speak. actually drives them out of Egypt, you know, where he cracks, where he gets angry. Right. That's the first time you see him actually expressing himself. And now that passage, I just want that is quite remarkable, and I, I was struck by that as I read this. Um, is that what he where he says to Moses, um, "You won't see me again," or if you, if yes. you, right? Yes. If, uh, yes. Where is that? Yes. He, he threatens them, and Moses, a rather, um, in a rather sinister repetition, says, you're quite right, I'll never see your face again. Right. In other words, he takes the reins. He, he, he doesn't simply submit to Pharaoh, refusing to give audience to him ever after, but he takes the reins and he says, right, I will never see your face again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the, uh, the irony is that Pharaoh comes out and the night of the uh, death of the firstborn, uh, Pharaoh comes out crying in the streets for right. Moses and Aaron um, to lead the, the people out. And basically he drives them out of Egypt mm. rather than yielding. Um, he basically expels them from the country. This, um, this language and this imagery of, of seeing is also strikingly, um, there's, there's lots of, there are many echoes and many mm. uses of that word that God yes. sees the suffering of the Israelites yes. early mm. on. Mm-hmm. And then and then I thought again, 
and I, I mean, and I think it runs throughout the text. And then again, you know, Pharaoh says, "You, if you, if you, if you look on me, you will die, or you will never see mm-hmm. me again." And yes. um, wh- tell me about that word in this in this narrative. Is there something going on with that image? I think it's it's a, a key word uh, in the narrative. Yes, um, one of the important first uses is where Moses goes out and sees the pain of his brothers. Okay. So that's a kind of seeing. It's an empathic seeing. And when God says at the burning bush that I have really seen, ra'o ra'iti, it's, a, it's an emphatic double use of the word, I've really seen the pain of the people and I've heard their cry. Uh, and it's that at that point where, again, there's a sense as if on God's level as well, in his dimension, a barrier has been removed and what God is now sensitive to is pain. So to be able to see pain, I think, is a very important um, dimension of what makes redemption possible. Even seeing one's own pain, mm-hmm. uh, it seems that the people are rather apathetic, even to their own pain. We don't hear them right. calling, crying out until the end, uh, and actually till the end of the uh, of the second chapter, I think. Um, Um, yes, the end of the second chapter. Okay. Then we have four times over that they cry out. Um, this, as for seeing, I think one very important and beautiful uh, reference um, is one that where, where the Midrash calls on verses from the Song of Songs, um, which I think can be treated as a kind of... The Song of Songs is the Exodus story from a very inward, intimate viewpoint, not the political story, but the intimate story of a love relationship, which has many moments of despair in it. Hmm. Um, and the point I'm thinking of is uh, where we read, uh, The voice of my beloved, here he comes, leaping over the mountains. In the Song of Songs. Mm-hmm. In the Song of Songs, mm-hmm. it's chapter 2, verse 8. Mm-hmm. Uh, leaping over the mountains, uh, vaulting over the hills. And here he is looking Looking, peering, he's standing outside our walls. He's peering through the window, the windows, looking through the cracks. Uh, I'm translating from the Hebrew. Good. Um, well, first of all, I think there's the sense that the only way redemption can happen is if the lover, who's God, does some leaping and vaulting. <laughs> that okay. is, that is, it, it's okay. not going to happen in a kind of sober. Um, merited mode. It's going to happen only if God somewhere disregards the, uh, the formalities <laughs> and anticipates ahead of time. He anticipates uh, what he wants to happen and makes it happen in some way. <laughs> so there's a sense of almost of, 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 of rushing, the, rushing the beloved off her feet. But what is the first thing he does? He actually doesn't rush straight into to the beloved. He stands outside and just looks at her. <laughs> and there's almost a kind of shyness about this peering, peeping through the, the window and the cracks. Uh, and it's that that the Medrash associates with God saying, I've really seen them. Hmm. I've really seen their pain. And one of the things that suggests to me is that one of the first things that makes the people begin to move internally is the, exp- the experience of being seen. Hmm. A, a very intimate feeling that God is really seeing them and seeing them where they really live. And we know that we know that experience in human relationships, don't yes. we? Of how yes. transformative yeah. it can 
it is how to be seen. To be, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And the, the sense then of their own pain mm-hmm. as experienced through the eyes of, of the other um, is the beginning of the people's redemption. Without, without an awareness of how wrong things are, uh, nothing will ever change. Um, so I think that is that's an extremely transformative moment. There is something so dynamic and fluid in in this text, um, in this in Exodus in particular, of uh, growth and and relationships, kind of kind of passion, as you say. I mean, comparing it to the Song of Songs feels mm-hmm. like it feels like a stretch, maybe, to someone who's not steeped in the midrashic texts, but. But of a passion on both sides, and and of I mean, we were talking about the you had the image of the people of Israel sort of being born, and it's it's almost like this relationship between God and humankind is being born, or God and the Israelites, mm-hmm. and and both of them, both on both sides of that equation, there's kind of dawning self knowledge and and development. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that is, is that is that fair to say that? I think so. I think so. I think in the uh, the Kabbalist, more the more Kabbalistic kind of midrashic tradition, mm-hmm. there is definitely the sense of God being aroused by human beings, just as human beings are aroused by God. And the word arousal is a very important word um, about the relationship between God and human beings, but that it's mutual. Mm-hmm. That that God is moved by human beings as well as the obvious other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the most important midrashic sources that I know on this story—it's one that I really love—is the the mirror story. Um, uh, this is a—it's a story that's told to prove how important women were to this whole redemption saga. Um, and it's a story about the righteous women of that time. What did they do? Um, so the story goes something like this. Um, Pharaoh decreed that men, should, men and women should be separated. Um, the men should sleep in the fields, the women should be at home. In other words, Pharaoh is solving his Jewish problem. Um, men and women will never meet, them, right. and so there will be no, no future. It's a kind of passive genocide. So what did the women do? And there follows this very intimate story of how the women prepared fish and wine. They, 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 they actually fished in the river, cooked the fish, bought, bought wine with the proceeds of some of the fish. And that is, they, it's a question of culture rather than nature. They, they do what they have to do in order to bring a meal down to the fields where their husbands are. And their husbands are demoralized uh, slaves in the field. They feed their husbands, and then they take mirrors. And these are the famous mirrors. Uh, They look in the mirrors of their husbands, uh, the two in a mirror, and she says to him, I'm more beautiful than you. And he answers her, no, I'm more beautiful than you. (laughs) (laughs) So there is some kind of, there's some kind of dare going on here. There's some kind of game um, as I understand it, it's a game in which she is challenging him to see his own beauty. Hmm. Uh, if there's anything left in him at all, hmm. you know, of, of, of any kind of assertiveness, hmm. um, then how can he not somewhere swing back at her when, when she has said that to him? 
And the result is, and the Midrash is very unequivocal, the result is that they accustom themselves to desire. It's an extraordinary expression. Hmm. As if desire is something that simply has disappeared from their repertoire. Right. And the result is that they, she becomes pregnant and has children. And how many children? A uh, number of different uh, speculations by different rabbis, starting with two at a time, the twins are born at every birth, and going on to a maximum of 600,000 at every birth. So this is not a realistic midrash. <laughs> this is, you know, it's a story yeah. that is saying something of great symbolic significance. It seems to me, six hundred thousand is the number um, of families that leave Egypt hmm. at the time of the Exodus. It's the, the total number of the Jewish people, um, and I think there's a sense here that what through her game, through her mirror game, what she has got going here makes it possible for each woman, each couple, to feel that they are capable of giving birth to all the many, very various uh, uh, possibilities. And the possibility of, of freedom. That of freedom, mm-hmm. of, of infiniteness, of, 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 of unpredictability, hmm. um, which, which, which such multiple births uh, suggests. <laughs> and that it's all done with mirrors, the Medrash says, mischievously. It seems hmm. to me. All these births, it's all done with mirrors. Forget about the fish and the wine. That was just the preliminaries. But the mirror is what did it. Hmm. And I have a whole theory about these mirrors. It seems to me that the mirror, the use of the mirror, is it's a device whereby when if one, looks, one looks in a mirror, one is basically always seeing a somewhat changed version of oneself a distorted version of oneself. So it means that the mirror represents somewhere, it represents fantasy. Hmm. It represents what may be possible. What do, what do women do in front of the mirror? Uh, the, the commentaries are careful to explain to the male reader in case you don't know what women do. Uh, they adorn themselves. Hmm. In other words, it's making up. It's, it's makeup. <laughs> uh, what women do is, from a certain philosoph- strict philosophical point of view, from the point of view of what has to be in the world, um, it's a little dubious. It's, it's women's monkey business. <laughs> but from the point of view of the Midrash and from the point of view of God, who supports the women's activities, um, this, it takes an act of this kind, a kind of performative act of whimsy and imagination, not looking at things quite straight, right. in order to open things up. It's very powerful. Once you're already... Mm-hmm. Playing a game, mm-hmm. then you can move into play as a very serious matter. Mm. That's, I think, really the, the, the message of the, of the Medrash. It's only by letting go of the pharaoh mentality, which is so edict-like, mm-hmm. this is the way it has to be, mm. and nothing can ever change. The most powerful way to let go is to enter into the world of play. Mm. And that's the erotic world. And that's the, the way in which... Uh, simply biologically, uh, babies get produced. Mm. But much more importantly, I think, it's also the way in which possibilities right. can I begin mean, to emerge. I mean, desire is a word you use, but it's also, it's, it's, it's desire and longing, mm. right? And in, the, in the widest possible sense. It's Absolutely. M- it's also longing for a different kind of life. Yes. Let's, let's talk about also the very mysterious name 
of God when Moses encounters God in the burning bush. Um, he he says, "Who should I, who should I tell them? Mm. I saw and the yes. and the and the name that comes back now. The way it's often translated in English is I am who I am. I've also heard it translated I am becoming who I am becoming. How do mm. you how do you read what is said and say it for me in Hebrew as well, if yes. you would." It's ehyeh, asher ehyeh. Mm-hmm. And literally, it just means, I will be who I will be. Mm. And I think there's just no getting around it. Um, these, some of these translations are just mistranslations. Right. Uh, yes. <laughs> and they don't because have to. They? <laughs> they really don't. Because yeah. he's actually what God is saying. God is being evasive. Mm-hmm. God is saying, I'm not, I'm not giving you a handle. You want a handle of some kind to, ho- to hold on to, to say, now I've got him. Uh, that's a name, mm-hmm. um, and God is not willing to to allow Himself to be to become in any way fetishized. And instead, He answers, "I, I am the very principle of becoming, hmm. of of allowing the possible to happen, so that 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 relationship between husband and wife that brought about redemption, mm-hmm. I think, in the largest sense, it becomes symbolic." of the relationship between God and the people, mm-hmm. of the Song of Songs, you know, if you mm-hmm. regard that as an allegory mm-hmm. on any level. Um, and what, again, what it takes to make that happen um, is some kind of movement away from a kind of rigid decree mentality mm-hmm. towards to the world of arousal, to what it takes for, for two partners to arouse each other. Do you ever talk about this story in this way and and have people experience it as extremely fanciful and so far from what they know that they can that they don't even recognize it? Um, well, I don't know what what yeah. I don't know everything that people yeah. think when they're listening, yeah. but um, usually when I'm teaching, I teach on the basis of texts. So we have the texts in front of us, mm-hmm. and um, I think at the least one can see how the ideas that I'm that what I'm making of what the midrash makes of you know there's certain layers going on here at least the process is becomes very transparent mm-hmm. we can see how I got there and exciting I think I dynamic. think so and it speaks to people because it's about our lives it's mm-hmm. about what's important and frustrating mm-hmm. in our lives yeah, you said you have. A, there's another line in your book um, about Exodus. You said what really happened in Egypt becomes a less important question than how best to tell the story, where to begin, what yes. in the master story speaks to one, and therefore makes one speak. Mm. Yes, the whole purpose of this one is one of the extraordinary um, recursive references in the story. Over and over again, God says to Moses, Moses says to the people, all this is happening so that you shall tell the story. Right. And it's so upside down, you might say, mm-hmm. you know, uh, since it's <laughs> happened, all right, tell the story. <laughs> Make sure people remember it. Mm-hmm. But that's not the point. It's not telling the story so as to remember what happened. It's, it happened so as to be the stimulus for a good story, for a meaningful story. And the, the stories will develop and change through time, and perhaps in the end, or along the way, you might find yourself telling a better story than is what is actually written in the text. Hmm. And so long as there is right. some connection. Right. Yeah. So that what you have, for instance, uh, on the Seder night, on, on the Passover, um, is basically the commandment, 
the, the, the commandment to tell the story of the Exodus, yeah. which doesn't mean reading the Bible. Okay. means, yeah. yeah, it isn't just opening up the Bible and reading. Yeah. It's, it's on the basis of this, what's called the Haggadah, the, the, the storytelling book, mm, kind of which the has a text. Mm -hmm. There is a fixed text, but it's supposed to be just a kind of uh, opener mm. for the proliferation of more ideas and more attempts to, to tell the story in a way that will come closer to, to what can really affect us. We, we, haven't, um, we haven't really gotten to the, the part of the story, which is especially, which is the focus of the Passover com commemoration, which is in fact the moment after that last plague when... Um, well, you tell that part of the story, the, the, the pa where, the, where the term Passover even comes from, that last experience of the Israelites under Pharaoh's yoke. Yes, well, the, you mean the death of the firstborn? Yeah, yeah. And that God passes over um, the Israelite houses uh, the, um, as, the, as the firstborn in the Egyptian houses. Uh, are dying. It's actually rather a terrible. Yes, it is terrible. Um, one can just imagine the the sounds, the crying, um, and there, I think there is really a feeling of of pressure at that moment. This is not a an ecstatic moment. This is an, a moment. The word that's used in the Hebrew text here and in later retellings of the story in Deuteronomy is chipazon. Chipazon means panic haste. Hmm. And you should eat the paschal offering, which the sacrifice that the Israelites were supposed to eat on that night. Um, you shall eat it in haste, uh, which is always a strange commandment, <laughs> an instruction. Ahead of time, you should prepare to eat it in haste. Hmm. Um, it's, right. not the, it's not the tempo. It's the, the people are being told ahead of time that the way in which you will experience this will be a pressured. There'll be a sense of pressure. Mm. The Egyptians will be rushing you out of Egypt. You will feel pressure in yourselves to get out as fast as you can while, while the going is good. But most of all, what's, what's called the, the haste of God himself, uh, a sense of history, a sense of the redemption as something that God is making happen rather faster than people can really assimilate it. Mm. Things are happening very fast at that moment, and people are almost not capable of registering what is really going on, as one often is not at, mm -hmm. uh, at critical moments of experience, and cataclysmic moments. Right, and this is a cataclysmic moment. I mean, it's this a is a moment at which people are dying. And yes, in yes. Many and of they the really houses. are not sure. People are not sure themselves, mm -hmm. what their fate is going to be. Mm -hmm. um, I think that kind of, of, of fear uh, is, is with the people for a long, a lot, a long, a long way into the journey. Mm -hmm. It's clear that they don't stop being afraid of Egypt, uh, even as they approach the Red Sea. They expect, um, and they look around, and there, of course, there's Egypt following them. Um, right, but and, I, and I mean, again, in the, in the story, again, it, of course, the Egyptians go through this horrible experience, but then it says one final time that God hardens, I believe it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart one more time so that yes. they don't just let the Israelites go, they follow, they pursue them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's madness. What's the, what is the Midrash about, about um, 
you know, the drama and the, the violence of that, those final scenes before the liberation, which is so celebrated and treasured. Could you repeat that last? Yeah, I'm just wondering what the Midrashic uh, interpretations are and how, 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 the Mid- how Midrash makes sense of the incredible drama and violence of those, of those final scenes before the liberation. Meaning before, before uh, the Israelites escape. Well, the, 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 the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians yes. and then Pharaoh's heart being hardened yet again and the pursuit. Yes, yes the pursuit and yeah. the, yes, the encounter at the Red Sea mm-hmm. and so on. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, there is one very striking midrash uh, that tries to account for the Egyptian madness, really, in running after them, actually in pursuing them after they have basically thrown them out of the country. Um, they, they, they can't tolerate the presence of this people, this troublemaking people any longer. And nevertheless, they change their minds and run after them. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is all in the persona of Pharaoh. He is, the, he is Egypt. Um, he says, what is this we have done in letting them go? It's as if he now thinks letting them go was a very, was a crazy idea. Um, what had seemed to be the most sane decision of his life a few days later, he decides was completely irrational. Um, and the Midrash puts it very, very provocatively and says something like this, that Pharaoh feels that as long as he had the Israelites in his power and God was sending him messages, it's, a very, it's an interesting euphemism for, hmm. for the plagues, hmm. that somehow he had some kind of very dramatic, intense relationship with God. He had a feeling that God needed him that he was important. But now that the people are gone and life has gone back to, to normal, the sense of drama has gone and life is actually quite boring. Hmm. Now, if when it comes, that sounds very trivial, but there is a sense that Pharaoh has strangely enjoyed being in the eye of the storm. Right. Um, and that also, I think, psychologically... Um, we know, certain, we know, we know, I mean, there are world leaders like that. That's, that's, yes, that's a yes. familiar kind of they figure just, from history, isn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. You know. uh, the worst thing is not being in the limelight, is not mm. being right there where it's all happening, even if you're suffering. Mm. So, of course, that's the mentality, of course, that, that leads to, to destruction, to total destruction. It's almost like a trance. One, mm. one, one doesn't want to be out of that, 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 that magic area in which one is being bombarded by God. Um, and they go and they some willfully basically throw themselves into the sea. Um, and I think there is a strong sense of insanity about that last, that last move. Um, all right, the sea has opened up, but yeah. uh, who in his right mind would trust that? Um, and then there is that the terrible descriptions of of, uh, of how the army and mm-hmm. with all the, the cavalry, mm-hmm. of how they are simply tossed into in, in the waves and and die. Uh, in very, it's a very graphic description. Yeah, I think again, uh, the song of praise that the Israelites sing after it's all over. It seems, if one looks closely at the text, I think one can find uh, room for understanding a midrashic view of this which suggests they sing not at the end when they're safe, but actually while they're still in the middle of the sea. Uh, And that this song is somewhere, it's an expression not just of jubilation, but of the human situation, of being in the middle, 
of being being full of fear, hmm. a sense of life and death in the balance, seeing what can happen to human beings all around them, and that uh, there but for the grace of God go I. Hmm. Um, and so the the song is not a, again it's not a simple it's not a simple ditty. Right. It's a song yeah. that human beings sing uh, in the face of mortality. And this is a long passage, which is known as Moses' song, I believe. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. He leads it. After they have a... Or, yeah, you're right. The text, it's not clear, is it? It's, you, you sort of you imagine it as after they have come out and the Egyptians yes. have been drowned. Yes. I think that would be the natural imagining. Mm-hmm. But um, if one looks closely at the text, one can see mm. that it says, um, you know, as they were walking mm. in the midst of the sea on mm. dry land, mm. uh, in the midst of the sea. So mm. if one imagine it, imagines it as the people still in that corridor, um, rather menacing corridor, which they know can collapse because it just has behind them, um, then the song becomes a different song. And it's a song... Of human beings at the edge between between death and life, mm. um, celebrating life, but uh, at the edge. Hmm. I wonder when you see, I don't know, I don't know, a movie version of this scene of the sea parting and the Israelites coming out triumphant. And I mean, what? Maybe you've just answered this question too, but I mean, what? What is missing for you in that, that, you know, that great climactic moment, which does result in the freedom of the Israelites? I mean, what, what is missing for you in a kind of simple mm. portrayal of that? Well, I think, again, it's, it's a question of uh, the particulars of rapture. In other words, uh, I'm always looking for the particulars. Yeah. Is the Particulars rapture, of Rapture is the title that you gave the to title. your book about, about yes. Exodus. So I wanted to ask you what, what you meant by that title so good. Yeah. Yeah, all right, so we'll try to, yeah, yeah. to, to, to touch on both. Yeah. Um, it, it seems to me that uh, it's a kind of storybook story, uh, that, that uh, Cecil B. DeMille story, in which uh, there are the bad guys and the good guys, and the bad guys get it. You know, they, mm-hmm. they get their comeuppance, yeah. and the good guys rejoice. And somehow it doesn't seem to me to be a, that's not a story for adults. Um, what you find in the Midrashic versions, many mul- multiple narratives, um, is an emphasis on the complexity of the Israelite experience. And the fact that immediately they land on the other side, they begin to complain yeah. and sin against, again, essentially to, to doubt mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole story of redemption. In other words, nothing is absolute. Um, and the fact that the Israelites are witnessing the deaths of the Egyptians, that is something, according to a very famous and beautiful Midrash, um, that means that the angels are not allowed to sit, the angels in heaven are not allowed to sing a song of praise. Uh, God stops them singing because the creatures of my hand, the work of my hands, are dying in the sea. Yeah. How, how can you be singing a song of praise? And God is speaking of the Egyptians. He's speaking of the Egyptians, mm-hmm. at least in certain versions mm-hmm. of the Midrash. Um, in other versions, he's speaking of the Israelites, who are also on the edge. Right. So there is a sense here of the right. pathos of the human condition. Mm-hmm. And, and the Israelites are very aware of that. Um, their, their song and their dance, the women play a special role. Again, in this story, they have a separate they sing separately. 
um, has to do with the kind of faith that is required to live in a condition in which rapture is not doesn't usually come uh, unalloyed. Mm. It comes it comes with a with a sadness and 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 a tension mm. uh, involved in it. So the particulars of rapture, um, that wonderful line from a poem by Wallace Stevens, mm. um, I had in mind the the subtleties and the complexities of all the many stories, like the stories that are hidden within the apparent uh, grand narrative. Uh, there is the grand narrative, which can be told very simply, and it, you could say it's a kind of children's story. Mm-hmm. And then there are all the details which really make the experience, even the details that one isn't totally aware of oneself and which emerge sometimes only on retelling the story. So the, you know, the great theme of the Exodus and, and the story has been used by other people in other situations also. Um, African-Americans, yes. um, slaves, yes. were very inspired. And in the civil rights movement, very inspired by this Exodus story. Um, mm. There's liberation theology. Um, uh, it's been empowering for all kinds of people in all kinds of bondage. Um, but tell me, when you think about the theme of, you know, what about of human freedom, human liberation, I mean, what what are the layers of the message that this story, this narrative tells um, about about that experience? Mm. Well, I think one of the important issues is one we've touched on, and that is um, the need for those who have to be liberated to achieve in themselves some sense of the possibility of change. Um, I think there comes a situation in um, totalitarian regimes of all kinds in which there is uh, uh, what Václav Havel, the uh, the Czech uh, leader, uh, calls in one of his books a kind of automatism in which everyone somewhere becomes the system. Um, people don't just accept their role, they almost become that role. Um, it doesn't. There's no, there are no choices involved anymore. Uh, Nadezhda Mandelstam writes about the uh, the Russian situation, um, the situation under communism, also as one in which no one believed that there could possibly be any change. Nothing would ever change again. And this is not only the, those who who were imposing the uh, the regime, but also those who suffered under it. Um, so that it seems to me that the story of the Exodus is one in which, in a quieter way, but I think in a very real way, one of the most important themes for liberation is the need for a process of growth mm. within the, the persecuted, mm. if they are to have a history. Mm. I want to ask you how being steeped in this story as you are um, and all the traditions around it, and having given it, given it so much thought and study, I wonder just if you could talk a little bit about how that infuses and forms your experience of the Passover ritual, rituals around Passover. Hmm. Well, um, if I think of the rituals, then the first rather heavy ritual is the cleaning mm-hmm. before Passover. 
um, which is not spring cleaning, although that one often takes the opportunity to do that as well. But it's really the idea of getting rid of any chametz. Chametz is unleavened, unleavened bread. Uh, on the Passover, one can't have any unleavened bread. Not only, not only may not one eat it, but uh, it, it can't exist within one's house. Um, and so one works quite hard to scrub away anything that has even uh, a, a taste of, uh, of, of chametz in it. And symbolically, well, all kinds of things have been made of this. Um, but basically the idea somewhere seems to be that there are elements within us which make it very hard for us to grow and to open mm. up. Following on what you just said about the deepest meaning yes. of this freedom and this story. Hmm. Yes, yes, yes. And, and that's how I understand it. And uh, I'm certainly not um, saying anything very new here. So that as one scrubs away, um, personally, I think about such things. Hmm. I think about you know, those things that are not so easy to scrub away. Hmm. Um, and uh, perhaps just by enacting... Um, this physical work um, that one becomes more focused mm. um, on what needs what needs attention and what in order to clear passages. Um, so th- that's one of the the mm-hmm. issues. I think the other one, uh, the other very beautiful ritual, is the whole Seder yes. night ritual, which is simply it's a it's a fiesta of of telling stories and asking questions. Or perhaps I should put it the other way around, that the central role of asking mm. questions. Um, if you have little children around, then that's a gift, because they should naturally be full of questions. And we do things to provoke their questions. We put strange things on the table, you know, bitter herbs, mm. so that they will ask, you know, what's that? And then we can talk about the bitterness of the slavery. Um, but of course, in the way of things, uh, little children get older. And they know the answer already. Um, and so they will ask more sophisticated questions, hopefully. Um, and the questions never end. Um, one of the uh, very famous parts of the Seder night is the part about the four sons. There are four different kinds of children who have different ways of approaching this problem mm. of questioning. Tell them. Um, ranging yeah. fr- from the wise yes. son to the one who doesn't know how to ask at all. And uh, obviously, we don't think very much of that. <laughs> you know, someone who simply doesn't know how to ask a question, um, that's a problem in terms of, of autonomy, in terms of freedom. I think not uh, knowing how to ask a question is far more serious than not having an answer, right, for you? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. For me, it's, there's no question. And I think for, in the Jewish mm-hmm. tradition, um, there is a sense that everything gets moving as a result of a problem, a question. Um, that's how, that, if you talk about arousal, then that's what arouses. As soon as you've got, even if you want to call it a complaint, um, even if it's a rather querulous question, it's still better than no question. Mm-hmm. Because it pushes at the, at the limits of, of the sort of silent conspiracy of, wh- of the way things have to be. Uh, it forces some kind of attempt to make sense of things. So there is the wise son and there is the wicked son. And the wicked son asks a very disruptive question. And we, you know, he isn't, there's, not, there's no great enthusiasm about his question. But it's still in the, in the hierarchy of things, it's probably better 
than uh, the one who doesn't know how to ask at all. And what you have to do with the one who doesn't know how to ask is, it's put very beautifully, you feminine, it's put in the feminine form, you open up for him. Hmm. You try to stimulate him. You know, you put things in such a way that perhaps that will wake him up. So the, the emphasis, I think the whole direction is on opening up, on opening what's closed. And on using these religious traditions and stories to to wake people up also, right? Mm. I mean, that's... Yes, the stories remain powerful. Mm-hmm. Stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stories remain very powerful, mm-hmm. as written. Um, and then <laughs> there is all the... One, the amazing cargo of uh, hidden stories right. that emerges in the Midrashic traditions. And then there is the invitation to the participants to tell their own stories and to ask their own questions and to elaborate further. So there is this sense of infinite elaboration. Does, does this tradition of posing questions, um, I, I know that it's, it's very... Mm, that it, it it makes perfect sense in kind of a Jewish religious sensibility, but um, is there something about the Passover story itself that lends itself to to taking that approach to retelling it and remembering it every year? Well, I think the question is, you can say the question is an expression of desire. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's if there is a question, then there is a possibility of movement onwards. Um, and when it comes to the theme, these themes of, of, of liberty, of freedom, mm-hmm. then I think questioning is really what what motivates, what what, what gets things moving. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the 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 strong sense that I don't know everything, you know that uh, there are things here that I need to know and don't know. Um, and even if one doesn't get a good answer, as you said, um, simply the activity of framing the question. Um, that 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 already moves one away from a kind of consensus. It kind of plants situation. a longing, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. yes, it's a longing. It's it's the individual again, um, the individual who expresses himself in that form, herself, um, and the sense also of um, parents and children, um, the relationship between the generations, mm-hmm. that the children are the ones who ask the questions, and in a sense, there is that always that gap. Even in the best, even in the best families, um, between the generations, the parents, as it were, stand for something. They 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 seem to know it all, and and the children are have their have their problems. They have their criticisms, and uh, this is the moment of freedom. Hmm. Oh, I I I think we have to. Um finish with time I want to uh, I think this is so wonderful I want to ask I'm going to be quiet for a moment I'm going to be seeing asking my producers behind the wall if they have anything that they want me to follow up Mm. on or ask you so just I'll be back in a Mm -hmm. moment sure okay they're very happy (laughs) yeah good (laughs) okay okay Okay. Um, Kate Moose, you, you may hear from her, Colleen, again. We'd like to send you some questions by email, just things we, we would like to know for scripting. and um, mm-hmm. Just a quick question. Uh, where, did you grow up in Israel? Or? No, no. 
I grew up in Scotland. Oh, you did? In Glasgow. Oh, I wonder. Yes. Well, I was wondering if maybe you, you'd learned English in Scotland. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> right. Yes, yes, yes. I, I think I still have a little bit no, of an accent. No, you do, you do. Like, okay. Yes. All right. Yes. And then how long yes. have you you've been away a long time? Or I've been in Israel since 69. Uh-huh. So it's really okay. a long time. Well, yes. this has just yes. been really delightful and exactly what I hoped would happen. Uh, so Thank uh, you. Thank you. I've enjoyed good. it too. Um, so you'll hear from us. I think we have to, to uh, shut this down, but I, I hope maybe we can talk again sometime. And we will let you know. You'll hear from us about what's happening with the show and you'll get a CD of it and all of that. Okay. Great. Thanks Great. so much. Thank okay. you very much. Bye. Yes. Good night.